you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 5 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Good to see you, Mark. Uh, On last week's show, you may remember we had a wonderful chat with family law solicitor Keith Walsh got a great reaction to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he 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 really did sort of lift the lid on the family courts. Yeah. And in particular, obviously, the, the the fact that because they're in camera, there's so much to that a lot of people just don't hear about. And he wasn't buying my argument that it's full of emotion and that, you know, you're part a counsellor and stuff like that. Yes, there's an element. He seems to be able to leave things, things, yeah, leave things behind he's at the end a, of the he's day. A he's a professional solicitor. Yeah. I, I want to learn from that man. That's the way to do your job. No, he was really, really impressive. Uh, and I found that really, really good. OK, well, this week we shift our gaze in the direction of criminal law. And with all the attention the Hutch trial is getting at the moment, we thought we'd take a closer look at the Special Criminal Court and the role of the Witness Protection Programme. And we're delighted to be joined uh, in studio today by criminal barrister Catherine McGillicuddy, who's going to talk to us about those issues and other criminal matters as well. I'm really looking forward to that chat. But first, Mark, as always, you have identified two very interesting cases from the Decisis website. The first is a PI case with a very interesting backstory. It involves a bull and a mart. It's a decision from Mr Justice Ferreter in the High Court. Can you tell us more? Yeah, well, as we, I, I know our producer, Connell, doesn't believe in acronyms. So a PI case is a personal injuries case. And it was a case involving a bull that was that was at a mart, as you say, and it was run it was run with a number of other animals into a crush or a run. Um, and the problem is, obviously, when, you, when you're when you putting cattle into a run, I'm sure you've experienced this. Yes, as I was going to say, the way you so, said it there, it sounded like you're well, a great I, expert. I, I did hurt cattle quite a bit as a works, child. I could see it all, um, yes. But when you, it's very often what happens <laughs> is you get a, an, an animal gets its head stuck in the railings of the run and the, 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 they can't go through. And so what happened in this case was that the operators or the people in charge of the mart decided to bring to effectively reverse the animals out. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. But the problem was that because one of these was a bull, and as you know, bulls are not as easy to handle as bullocks or cows, they tend to get yes, agitated. And the person here, the farmer who was involved in the mart, um, was attacked and gored. And yeah, um, horrific. he suffered horrific, yeah. nasty, nasty injuries. Um, and there was an accusation that he had in some way aggravated the bull himself by his use of a stick. But I mean, I think it, the best, you, the worst you could say is probably he was trying to defend himself. In any in any event, it was accepted by Mr. Justice Ferreter that the mart was negligent in, yes. in the way that they so, handled it. So, so the issue was: at what point did the bull transfer from his ownership or his responsibility to that of the mart? So, Mr. Justice Ferreter said, you know, once he goes into the pen or once he goes into the crush, as you described it, that that's when the mart takes over, and that's where the responsibility is. And I think there's a wider issue, which is the, the the safety of the system involved. You know, once you have a number of animals in an enclosed space, you do require the people who own the marsh to, um, to, 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 to operate it properly. Okay. Um, 75,000 euros, that was the award in this yeah, case? that's right. Uh, there was, obviously, he damaged his ribs. Was yeah. A very serious injury. I mean, you can just imagine being gored by a mm. bull. And obviously, obviously, um, there was PTSD 
post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder as yeah. well. So he got some compensation for that. Do you know how the compensation broke down? No, I don't have that. Okay, okay but just so we, we, yeah. we can understand why there yeah. would be an extra element for, mm. for, for PTSD. Okay, really, really good case and really interesting case, Mark. Okay, next to a very interesting asylum decision. And this concerned a judicial review application of a decision of the International Protection Appeals Tribunal uh, made in respect of an Indian national. Uh, Ms. Justice Phelan granted the relief sought on the basis that the tribunal had not fully taken into account very, very specific in this case, country of origin information. Obviously, with asylum seekers, country of origin information is always central to their claims. Uh, and this case, it was very, very specific, Mark. Can you tell us about that? That's right. Well, <clears throat> by coincidence, this also involves the the, the cattle trade. Um, now, I, I, as we know, obviously, in, in India, um, Hindus consider the, the, the cow to be a holy creature. Um, but India also has a very sizable Muslim population. I think it's about 200 million people. And Muslims obviously are allowed to eat beef. Now, there are some parts of India where cow slaughter is banned altogether, but there are other parts where there there's a reasonably sizable beef industry and Muslims, for obvious reasons, tend to be involved in that. This particular applicant had come to Ireland saying that because he was involved in the beef trade that he was at risk of persecution. And what the International Protection Appeals Tribunal found was that he could have relocated within India to yes. avoid the persecution. And so that was the issue that came up. Now, I... Again, you know, India is a huge country. Obviously, in theory, you might have been able to relocate. But also, it's worth saying that Muslims aren't, it, it tend to be quite widely spread throughout the country. It's not as if there are large Muslim areas yes. or in, in particular. But, but also a factor in this case was that was his trade. That was his job. He was exactly. a butcher or maybe not yeah. a butcher, worked in the meat industry. That's exactly. what he did for a yeah. living. Yeah. And, you know, to practice that anywhere within India was potentially problematic. That was exactly. his point. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a, there's a, obviously a, a big issue in India these days because the, there's a Hindu nationalist party in government and so that th things have got much less pleasant for Muslims living in the country. Um, but in any event, what the what the court found was they hadn't given sufficient attention to the issue of, in, of internal relocation within India and that the finding that, that they, they should have had more information to hand before they determined that he could have avoided persecution by relocating. Yes, no, it's really interesting. So there was a kind of a combination of country of origin information mm. coupled with the specific circumstances. I suppose that always applies. Yeah. But in this, it was very specific. Uh, and it's a very interesting decision from uh, Ms. Justice Phelan. OK, we've only two today, Mark. Normally we have three, but we've only two today. So that's it. We'll whet the appetite for next week. We'll be back very shortly with Barrister Catherine McGillicuddy. Silence in the Fifth Court. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the studio Catherine McGillicuddy, criminal law barrister. Amongst other things, Catherine, I know you have other areas of practice, but you're well known for your practice within criminal law. And Thanks very much for having me on, well, Mark and and Peter. Delighted, delighted to have you in. And, you know, at the moment, criminal law is everywhere. It's everywhere all the time. But obviously the Hutch trial has attracted a lot of attention to the special criminal courts. We thought maybe we might talk about that a little bit. Um, and, you know, so, so generally around uh, the, the courts there in the Phoenix Park, What's the, the vibe with this Hutch trial? Is it, is it well, capturing the imagination of you criminal legal practitioners as well? I suppose there's a lot of security around the building at the moment, but that would be not particularly unusual if there's a case in the Special Criminal Court. It's, I suppose, heightened maybe, especially at the front entrance at the moment. Um, so the Special Criminal Court uh, would always have a guard of the presence outside. They would take a note of any person who wanted to enter the court 
just take their name, details. They might ask them what's their interest, but that has historically been the position. Um, and the, I suppose there's a bit of a buzz in terms of journalists' interest yes. in it. And uh, and it's going to last for weeks and weeks, It Catherine. is. It's only just started. It's very early stages in the case. So at the moment, it's kind of the introductory thing. So the, I think it will take a while before okay. the... Well, let's, let's, get into, let's get into the Special Criminal Court and the way it goes about its business. But one of the first aspects that emerged in this trial was the witness protection programme. There was a witness, somebody who was convicted, but got a lesser conviction because they were participating in terms of state's evidence and the witness protection programme. Uh, that's relatively novel in Irish law, isn't it? Well, we've had um, witnesses going into the Witness Protection Programme probably since the Veronica Guerin case. That's okay. probably the first, um, the genesis of it really in, Ir- in Ireland. And um, I suppose each case is different. Sometimes you will have uh, people who are just protected witnesses because they have serious evidence to give, but they can stay in Ireland and live their lives as normal, perhaps with a you know, a better security system installed in their house, maybe CCTV cameras. Other times it's more uh, nuanced or or difficult. Um, In this or in some cases, you might have a situation where a person is charged along with other people and then they may contact one way or another with a view to entering the witness protection programme. And then uh, a number of different things could happen a proposal might be made uh, that uh, they might, uh, you know, enter a guilty plea to a particular uh, offence, make a statement and seek to be uh, admitted to the Witness Protection Programme. But the order of those things might vary. Obviously, in terms of pleading guilty to a lesser offence, that's something that the Director of Public Prosecutions would have yeah, to consider. Yes, so they'd consider. have to be all over that. The GDP yes. has to be across this. It's yes. not just the guards. That's right. And it's not a foregone conclusion that somebody would automatically be a, you know, a, a plea to a lesser offence would be accepted. Yes. That would depend sure. on the circumstances of the case. Um, okay. And in terms, in terms of, let's say, have you had direct experience of this? I don't want you to go into any specific yeah, cases, but I, you have had direct I, experience. I've, I've seen it, uh, saw it in an ordinary murder case in the Central Criminal Court a long time ago where um, the witness who'd entered the programme was in, involved it was in well it was alleged that he was par- participating in maybe the lead up to the murder in terms of movements of vehicles if I can put it that way and um, he effectively approached uh, through his solicitors the guardie with a view to entering the programme he then gave evidence against the co-accused and um, certainly at the trial one of the notable things for me was that the accused there were two accused They were very, they were, I suppose, they were in difficult circumstances in that they were people who had suffered from addictions. And this person who had gone into the witness security program, as it's now known, also had had suffered from addictions. But by virtue of the fact that he had now gone into the program, his presentation was entirely different. It was clear that he was somebody who was now clean. He was in a better place. Absolutely, visibly so. And... um, one of the, I suppose, features of this is that people will wonder, well, what are the terms and conditions of that person's entry into the programme? Sure. Have they gotten uh, financial assistance? Have they gotten health care or addiction uh, help and treatment? And, um, 
you know, if there's any incentives or inducements offered to them. And is, is much known publicly about how the programme works or is it generally shrouded in secrecy? I mean, we do know that there's cooperation, certainly between the, the Gardaí and police in other English-speaking countries in terms of resettling people and giving them a new identity and that kind of thing, don't we? Well, the programme is not on a statutory basis. Um, I think that... Uh, a good deal is known about it in practice because it does come up from time to time. Um, in terms of the the personnel that are involved, it goes to a quite a high level yeah, inside the uh, the Angarda Shikona. Ultimately, an assistant commissioner is involved in the process. And we know that the criteria would have to be that the person is, or sorry, that the alleged crime is something that's serious that the person has evidence of real significance, something that would make a, a you know, an impact in respect of the prosecution case and, and also that they're at risk. Yeah, we're effectively talking about organised crime and paramilitary organisations, aren't we? I mean, the, Oftentimes, the, but not necessarily yeah. so. Um, it could be just a very serious crime and uh, it, that somebody has evidence that really is very significant in respect to the case and then... So they look at all of those features and also the person themselves, their psychological background, how they would fare out in a programme, what kind of assistance would they require, what can be offered and to in fact, them. when you talked about the statutory basis, I think the only statutory provision is one that's designed to prevent anybody actually trying to identify somebody who's on a programme, isn't that right? That's right. So um, if you, if a person were to take steps to try and find out where a witness was, that's a criminal offence yeah. or if a person who had information about the witness in the programme and disclosed it, that's also an offence. Okay. And, and I suppose those are, are subspecies of, of a common offence, which is intimidation of witnesses, sure. which we've had since 1999. So this wouldn't be anything groundbreaking or, or anything mm. unusual. It would be in keeping with that type of provision. Okay, really interesting, Catherine. And as you said earlier, there has to be buy-in from a, a, no, a number of different parties that are involved, obviously the guards, the DPP, but also the court. And this is the bit that kind of strikes me in terms of separation of powers. So at, at a local level, maybe the guardie investigating something and maybe the DPP uh, yeah, allowing the, the individual to plead to a lesser charge. I mean, the court is separate. The court is separate in terms of imposing a sentence. So, so how does that work? Are you saying just in respect of the sentence that the witness has pleaded guilty to? Yes. Is just that aspect? Yes. Well, I suppose... Like, I mean, the, the court has to be free to impose whatever sentence the, the crime merits, that's, presumably. That's right, because um, obviously the court obviously sentences, number one, the offence before it. Yes. So if the person has pleaded guilty to a particular offence, the court will ask, OK, what is that offence? What is, are the facts and the circumstances around it? Yes. What are the maximum penalty? And then also... What are the personal circumstances of the person who yeah. they are And there'll always be mitigating factors, I accept that. Yeah. But is there not a separation of powers issue here? But what, in what sense? Well, in the sense that it only works, I would imagine the witness protection programme works if all the parties buy into it, if you know what I mean. You know, that there is going to be a lesser sentence at the end of the day. Or can you guarantee that? No, I wouldn't. Maybe I'm jumping I, ahead. I, I don't think that's the case because I think the ordinary sentencing provisions apply. You uh, sentence the offence and the offender. It might be something that the court is asked to take into account. The fact that this person has given information and almost got, know that they are being sentenced and the court is obviously open to giving them whatever sentence they want. But if the court is minded to give them a prison sentence, then of course they might say, well, prison is going to be more difficult for this person. 
because there may be safety and security concerns for them in, in custody and also because they're entering this programme they're, they're going to have to make lifelong changes okay. uh, to their life on foot of, of the information that they have given. And this is something, maybe uh, a hardship that, that the court may or may not take into account okay. ultimately. In, um, so there's loads of factors, that's what you're telling me. And that's the way it works. And, yeah, yeah. and ultimately when that witness comes to court later on, on a separate occasion to give evidence in whatever trial they are going to be giving evidence in. Uh, the fact that, for example, if it is the case they've pleaded to, guilty to a lesser charge and got a particular sentence for it, all of those issues will undoubtedly be explored by the defence. And um, ultimately, whatever court is dealing with that offence, will they'll see the witness, their credibility will be tested. The fact, you know, it'll possibly be put to them that, well, you know, you've, you, you had skin in the game, you were in trouble yourself, um, you decided you were going to save your own neck and you saw an opportunity to drop other people in it. Nothing you say is reliable. Your credibility is shot. And, you know, you have, um, you have, you only got a short sentence and you wanted out something along yes, those lines. Okay. But, uh, and also ultimately, so the court will hear all of that. They'll see the witness, they'll test, they'll see for themselves what credibility they want to, um, the judge or jury as the case may be. Uh, and um, ultimately, when the court is coming to determine the case, whether it's judge or judges or jury, um, there's a warning given in respect of the witness. Yes. So they, there might be an accomplice warning if they were accomplice, or there might be a warning given to reflect the fact that this is a, a witness who maybe their their testimony should be approached with a degree of caution and to remind the ultimate trier's effect in the case that, that this witness's testimony may not be totally reliable and to take that into account when okay. ultimately determining the brilliant, case. Brilliantly explained, Catherine. Can, can I just ask, Mark, do you want to come, you want to come there? Well, I was just going to ask, the um, when you talk about the ultimate triers of fact, I mean, would protected witnesses largely be giving evidence to the special criminal court or would you find them before juries in, in ordinary you, trials? You, you can find them before ordinary juries. I've seen that myself. Um, but I suppose most often in the special criminal court, and obviously what you're, the point you're getting to is the fact that there's no jury in the special criminal sure. court. Mm. You have three judges who are the judges of law and ultimately the judges of fact. So they are judges and jury in the same case. So um, they are effectively professional jurors. Yeah. And uh, But the same principles apply. They see the witness. They hear their evidence. The witnesses are tested. Whatever material the defence wish to put to them is put. And ultimately, when they come to deliberate on it, they are told to warn themselves about the the yeah. risks of evidence being given by this person that mm. it might not be reliable. Okay, and and we know that Mr. Hutch, in, in the, the case we're talking about, fought hard to have his case heard in the Central Criminal Court before a jury. Uh, and you know, if you look at the statistics and if you look at the the sort of the the results that come out of the, the Special Criminal Court, can you understand why he might have fought like that? Well. I suppose the the case that uh, Hutch and Dowdle brought uh, challenging the Special Criminal Court was slightly different. There's been a number of different challenges over the years and one of, I suppose, the aspect that, that they were zoning in on was that the current Special Criminal Court is really in operation since 1972 and being renewed on an annual basis. And the idea being that in the 70s when it, it commenced, this particular Special Criminal Court was that we had a particular 
landscape politically yes. uh, in that there was a provisional activity uh, yeah. with the IRA. Paramilitaries, of course. Yes, yeah. and that that climate has dissipated and we're now over 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement and that same impetus for that that emergency type of landscape is no longer the case. So that was the focus of that particular challenge and ultimately was rejected by the Supreme Court on this occasion. So um, I, I suppose... Uh, Ultimately, we have a provision in our constitution enabling um, special courts or emergency type of courts. And that is the basis for the special criminal court. And it is, it is um, I suppose, put forward before the doll year in, year out and renewed annually. So at the moment it is being renewed. I don't know down the line whether that will change. Yes. Obviously, it is something that is really roundly and heavily criticised by the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and other bodies for a very long time. Um, but Sinn Féin, for example, yeah, for a long time, that was their policy. That, that's I think right. they're rolling back on it now, so but anyway. In recent times, they have taken the approach of abstaining from the vote in the Dáil and I think they've had a motion in their Ardesh in the last few years where they have rolled back against that absolute, um, you know, opposition to the court. So, I mean... There is a review of the court happening at the moment. I think Judge, uh, retired Judge, uh, Judge Michael Peart uh, is overseeing that. Yes. So we'll just have to see, see how, how it, how plays, it out. plays out. Obviously, a trial by jury is considered to be, you know, a fundamental uh, constitutional right and part of fair procedures that you're tried before, uh, you know, 12 people picked at random from the community. The idea being that ultimately they decide your peers decide whether you're guilty or not guilty. And that's always seen as a fundamental right. As against that, there's particular people who are in favour, the Special Criminal Court would say that there are particular security concerns in this state, whether it be from uh, provisional, um, you know, or, or paramilitary type of organisations or from serious organised crime that merit the continuance of the court. Okay, no, really good. And... And just in terms of how it works, as you explained, you explained brilliantly that the court serves as both judge and jury. So the three members of the court serve as, as judge and jury. How do they wear those different hats? Well, undoubtedly, there's an element of mental gymnastics required uh, by the court. Um, so, for example, if a legal issue um, arises normally in a criminal trial, that legal issue is determined by the judge alone. So the jury are asked to leave the room and they're, they're told about this at the start of every case. Look, a legal issue might arise. You'll be asked to leave the room. It's not because we're doing anything behind your back. It's because the judge must deal with the legal issue because the law is for the trial judge and the facts are for you. So once we've determined the legal issue, yes. you'll be invited back in and the case will continue. So, um, and I suppose part of that is to make sure that no inadmissible or irrelevant evidence uh, slips into a trial and that the jury hears something that wouldn't be fair. Yes, of course. Uh, so um, that is the thinking there. Whereas in the Special Criminal Court, because the judges and jury are one and the same being, there is no leaving the room, coming back into the room. They're asked to effectively press pause on their jury role, deal with the legal issue. And uh, then when that is dealt with, um, you know, continue as though we're now judge and jury mode again. And I suppose, there, you know, there's always a risk because of human error that, that the court might ultimately, when it reaches its decision, 
um, have regard to something yes. that happened in, in so that legal issue. So the information that was in that voir dire type scenario is lingering in the back of the mind sure. and therefore has an impact. And I no, mean, how can you judge that? No, you can't. One of the ways you can judge that is that the Special Criminal Court delivers a written judgment and certainly explains its uh, reasons. So that's always available. So you'll have, you know, sort of the, I mean, when I say the judge will have written out a judgment and delivered it. So the, there's reasons for the decision available to the parties. And that's different to what happens in a normal jury trial where the, all you will ever hear from the jury is guilty or not yes. guilty. You'll never hear from a jury, well, you know, we found the CCTV evidence particularly compelling and that's what led us to find the person guilty. But we, we didn't, we weren't that, you know, weren't that interested or or compelled okay. by so the... So the written decision is very helpful well, and I suppose if I there's a appeal they, issue then down the line... They pronounce the reasons for their decisions yes. and that's available then. What about, was, there, was it ever mooted that there should be a sidebar court? Maybe a judge sitting alone who can deal with legal issues that arise and then let's go back before the judge and jury, the three, the three members... To, in order to consider the facts of the case. I'm not sure if it's ever been mooted, but I suppose when you say that, the, the practicality of dealing with that, it, it seems quite difficult in that um, what you would have then is, you know, legal issues kind of don't exist in a vacuum. So the legal issues must always be considered in, in the context maybe of the particular case. Yes, so of course. If you had a, and a by the judge. Yeah, so if you had a separate judge dealing with a particular legal issue, there would be a lot of information that might have to be you know, relayed to them before they could really grasp what that's about. So that so might be, be quite impractical. slow. Highly yeah. impractical. Well, look, I, I mean, it it maybe could work. Um, I suppose <laughs> it could possibly work. I, I'm not aware of it ever being mooted in that context. Um, and obviously the Special Criminal Court is a, a three-judge court. So the idea of one judge dealing with a, yes. a particular legal issue you know, is even less attractive, I think, as a concept, particularly to the defence. Can I move to another issue? I think there was a recent judgment where a jury conviction was set aside because the trial judge had been asking too many questions during the hearing. Um, and the, the, the suggestion was that by by asking a lot of questions, particularly during cross-examination, he was effectively putting the cross-examiner of his or her stride and uh, I suppose possibly indicating some kind of um, indication of his own view during the questioning. Was that part of the consideration? Well, like I suppose that the issue of um, intervention by trial judges has been something that comes up occasionally. It's not a common occurrence here. I certainly am aware of it occurring in a judicial review context where uh, effectively the the, the DAR or the transcript of the hearing in question was reviewed by the High Court and they were satisfied that the level of intervention was excessive and then that that deprives the accused person of a fair trial. And that, I suppose, is ultimately what the, the whether it's an appeal court or a review court, will be examining. And um, it is, look, it's an unfortunate issue when it happens. Uh, and in fairness to all, all you know, I suppose... Uh, it's difficult to stop a judge asking questions. Sometimes the, the question is just exactly what the jury might be wondering mm. about themselves. And um, I suppose it's just a very unfortunate thing when it happens because it's actually nobody's interest that it happens. It's not the accused person or the, the victims because more often than not, the, the outcome is that the case must be retried and that is difficult for everybody. But mm. judges are human too. It's unlikely that any judge would 
getting to the seat in the morning with a view to scupper something that just course, doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah, no, I, but clearly uh, it, it, yeah. it's, it's one of these issues that comes up from time to time and I suppose when when a decision like that is made by the Court of Appeal it just reminds everybody that, 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 that the the primary movers in terms of asking questions of the council rather than the judge. That's right. But I mean, like I say, it, it's very difficult to stop a judge from asking questions or to say to a judge, that's too much. Mm. Ultimately, they're there to, you know, ensure there's a fair trial. And, you know, if they have a question or if there's something they didn't follow, oftentimes it's useful because the jury might be thinking the exact same thing. Um, so, look, it happens. It's not common, thankfully, and it is, um, it's unfortunate because it puts everybody through the process a second time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and another issue that I, I know is is in the press quite a lot. It concerns the uh, availability of criminal legal aid. On, the, on and um, I mean, we've heard obviously in the UK that it, 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 there have been strikes, and there it, it's got to the stage where there are people saying it's simply impossible to get people to act in in criminal cases. Um, I don't think the, the situation is as acute here, but they did reduce criminal legal aid, I think in, in 2009, 2010, and it hasn't come back up again. And um, do you think that's having an effect on the criminal bar? Well, yes, I think is the short answer. Um, the UK is slightly different. They went on strike having balloted there in August, September. They've actually come to an agreement. They had, I think, sought something around the, a 25% increase in payments and they were offered 15%. And by, I think, when they balloted the proposal to increase fees by 15%, 57% of barristers agreed to it. It still seems to be controversial in, in the UK, but they achieved something by virtue of, of the strike. Um, you're right, uh, here in Ireland, uh, the fees were, um, I suppose, cut in 2008. I think there was a second cut in 2011. They have not recovered to the pre-2008 levels. I think um, other, say, aspects of public funding that was cut around the same time have actually been uh, brought back up. So it's, it is, um, I suppose, it has not been reinstated. And also, I think, by international standards, criminal legal aid would be considered to be underfunded in Ireland, particularly in regard, you know, by comparison to our neighbours. So if they were increased, um, having already been better than us, I suppose it reflects that we're at particularly low level. And for younger practitioners, in particular in criminal legal aid, as a barrister in the district court, they are going to court to do a case to, to remand it for as little as €25.20. Or if there is a guilty plea and the case proceeds to sentence for €50.40, or if the case is a full hearing for, I think, a little over 67 euros. Mm. So it's, it's hard to make an right. income at that it level. It has been ever thus, though, hasn't it? In terms of, you know, junior barristers coming in and splitting fees with solicitors, etc. That's been there forever, even before well, these deductions that were that were brought I, about by the economic collapse. And it's always been wrong, hasn't I, it? It's I, always been wrong. I think it's something that has probably been a feature maybe since the late 90s. Okay. And um, what I suppose at that stage, the idea was that, you know, a junior barrister would get uh, some kind of experience and a bit of a beginning at cross-examining and, and doing things themselves before graduating on to the higher courts, the circuit court, the central criminal court, the special criminal court, the court of appeal, the Supreme Court. So it, it, you need to it, learn your craft, of exactly, course, and that was a great but, way of doing but that. But what is happening is that um, people are 
effectively staying and in that court for a very long time before graduating and the fees are very low. And what we've also had since that time is there's been an explosion in criminal legislation. There has been an explosion in, I suppose, disclosure issues and the complexity of cases that are before even the district court now in comparison to the late 90s. It's like night and day. Yeah. And, um, and I think there are effectively more district courts as well, aren't there? I mean, the solicitors effectively have to divide their practices between more courts, whereas there was a time when one solicitor would go into a court and basically deal with a lot of the, the cases there. Now they have a number of barristers in a number of different courts. Well, I think that, and I, that presented an opportunity yeah. for people mm. starting off that a solicitor couldn't physically get mm. around everywhere sure. they needed to be. So barristers, of course, are have an mm. appetite to learn and work and earn money and to, you know, be a part of the administration of justice. That's what we're trained sure. for. But um, what has tended to happen is that it, it's just become a very um, poorly paid um, vocation and people are finding it hard to make a living. And like everybody, you have to make ends meet. And if you're at this for a number of years, there's a high rate of attrition and the, I suppose the end point of that is that you want, and we all want, because, you know, if it was your brother or your first cousin or your best friend from primary school who had the, who had been uh, charged with a criminal offence and you knowing them felt that they, there's absolutely no way that they could have committed this and you feel very strongly about that, you want them to be represented by the absolutely. best person with the best experience. And if we don't, you know, the, the the system is always evolving. You need young people or young practitioners, new practitioners to learn their trade now so that in a few years they are at the peak of their game, that you get the absolute best people so with the highest experience. Absolutely. It's incredibly important work. And across the board, at, at all levels within the court system, criminal practitioners do incredibly important work. So you saw your colleagues across the, the water in the UK. Now, as you say, it's slightly different to here and we know that. But is there going to be any gatherings with placards and, you know, senior criminal barristers gathering around burning bins to keep their hands warm as they protest up and down outside the court? Is, is, is there talk of, of taking it to a different level? Right. I know the Bar Council are making a lot of representations on your behalf. I know as a lobby group, you're very good and you're in contact with the Minister of Justice all the time. Does it need to go to a different level or is that the chat down in the tea rooms down in uh, I, Phoenix Park? I, I'm not a spokesperson for my colleagues okay, so I won't dine to, to sort of make a definitive statement on that. That would be wrong. Yes, of course. Uh, what I can say is that there has been, um, I suppose, an increase in momentum about the dissatisfaction about this and maybe some um, possibly sort of uh, creeping efforts to raise the issue, to publicise it, but also with an effort to engage always with the, the ministers, the relevant ministers, with a view to see if something can be agreed. Because ultimately a, a strike really is something that we would, and again, I don't want to talk for my colleagues, but I would say that a strike is something that people would be would be cautious about. It's, I'd say, a measure towards last resort, if Absolutely. not last resort, because ultimately our work is to be part of the administration of justice. And if we are, are on strike, for example, that means that... People are being denied representation. Yes, oh, and, yes. and uh, on the other side, victims are affected because the case where they wanted to give evidence yes, something that happened to them it would cause doesn't chaos. go ahead. It would be very sad if that happened, so, yeah. So that is not something that people want to rush into, um, but uh, I suppose like all options, it, it's on the table. Um, 
but this is something I suppose that's ongoing and uh, we, uh, we'll just have to see what happens over the coming weeks and months on that. Okay, and can I just ask you just a final kind of area for me, just in terms of lists and the list system down in the criminal courts, are things moving along nicely? Is there enough judges? Do you feel there's more judges required or are cases getting on within a reasonable period of time? Well, like everything else, it's been affected by COVID and um, I, undoubtedly there's across the board a shortage of judges um, and I think that that's something that, you know, the judges speak of. I know that at the new president of the High Court, David Barnville, was talking about that in the Irish Times over the summer. So that is something that that comes up. And, you know, I think there's certainly work for more judges. Um, are there delays? Yes, certainly at the moment. If you are a person who comes before Dublin Circuit Criminal Court and you want a trial date for whatever matter you have been accused of, if you're on bail and there's no particular reason that it, it needs priority, you are looking at a trial date at the end of 2024 at the wow, moment. Wow, okay. So that's it's, a long time it's, away. It's a long time away and that's with the best will in the world. That, that's the Circuit Criminal Court. Yes. And the Central Criminal Court, I think, is similar. Central Criminal Court, it, it varies. I don't think it, it, because the Central Criminal Court sits around the country sure. and deals with cases in, you know, Cork or, or Limerick, um, there is always a possibility that those cases can move. I, my experience is that the, the delay is nowhere as bad in the Central Criminal Court. Sure. But the difficulty in the Central Criminal Court is that you might get a trial date. Let's say, you know, for example, a trial date has been set a, a while ago, close to a year ago for this November, for November. And then everybody assembles on the date, but there's no judge available. Sure. So then you may not, get the case on and it might have to go back. That is something that happens and, and I suppose that happens in all trial dates but the actual setting of the trial date is not it's not as bad as a circuit court sure. certainly in Dublin um, but there is that difficulty that you can't be certain that the case will get on because judges there are only certain amount of judges and also cases have to be prioritised yes. so judges mm -hmm. will, will have to hear whether somebody's in custody whether the, there might be a child mm. complainant, it might be a retrial, there may be different features mm. that might merit something leapfrogging other cases possibly mm. and, and getting ahead because of, of particular features. And as you say, that for, that. for anybody, whether they're accused or a victim or an alleged victim, to have to wait effectively two years um, for, for, the, for the case to come on is, is really quite considerable. It's, yeah, so we need so the message today is we need more judges. We, we Not the first time that's ever been said on a legal show, <laughs> yeah. but anyway, Catherine, thank you. That has been this has been absolutely brilliant, and you've addressed everything so comprehensively and brilliantly. We have one final question, our, our two final questions actually. One, did Mark tell you about the book? What book are you going oh, to recommend? Yes. Legal um, book. So I, I had to think about this, and uh, I wanted it has to, pick, to be a thriller. Uh, I actually have four, so I have four, four excellent I, four Irish writers. Um, so I thought that. Um, and I try to keep it gender balanced. So uh, retired judge Gillian Hussey has a book yes. out recently um, on her time as a district a judge. And the name now has totally gone out of my head. Um, the bench is written yeah, no, it's, it's, it's well known. We can, we can, yes. we can put that and out. No, so, um, great choice. 
And also then the second book that I recommend for somebody who was interested in um, maybe understanding the sense of sexual offences and consent and the difficulties around that. Uh, it's a really good book by Louise O'Neill called Asking For It. Yes, the writer, yeah. She's yes, columnist she's, with the Sunday was, Times. Yes. That's right. That's into a play as well. That's I think. correct, yeah. yeah. And then on the other side, um, uh, two of our colleagues, Michael Higgins, uh, senior counsel, has written a book called Snapchats. Um, is that a novel? Sorry, it's... Uh, Sorry, it was Snapshots is the name of it. It's a, it's a fiction. Yes, yeah. fiction, yeah, yeah. It's not Snapchats. I said to him that that should be the sequel. <laughs> uh, Snap, Snapshots <laughs> is the name of the book. Uh, Snapchats is not written, but should be, I think. Um, and then the other book is by uh, Pat Marinan. And uh, he wrote, wrote a book called Scapegoat. And those two books are fictions, but uh, they are interesting from the point of view of just seeing a little bit about investigations and there's a little bit about the courtroom and because they're written by eminent criminal yes. practitioners with so, a real sense of this, it's just interesting to see how, you know, they, and I mean, the works are entirely fictional, but they, they that they bring that thing to life in a particular way. So, Wow, that's fantastic. But you're right, it is fiction, but it's it's coming from people who are experts in the field. So everything they write is substantive, you know, because they will know that. What about a movie? Did you, did you think of any movie? Um, are we putting so you on the spot I, there? Look, I, you, four for books me, are, you know, you've done um, more than enough with four a, books. A so sorry, I've been very unfair. has to be up there. <laughs> you can't handle it. That, you can't. Yeah. Go on, say it. Say the phrase. <laughs> I wouldn't do justice. But <laughs> All right. that, that has to be up there. And I mean, if you're looking for TV shows, like Rumpole of the Bailey is still excellent. Yes, I loved special. Matlock growing up. Um, yeah. But Matlock is, does not give a true representation of, you know, how much work goes into these things. Because Matlock always seemed to think of something in the spur of the moment. Whereas in, the reality is it's about, you know, one o'clock in the morning, buried deep at page you know, 408 of 600 pages of disclosure might find something of use for your cross-examination. I think a lot of us watched the movies and said, oh, the law, it's going to be so sexy and so much fun. And it is at times, but maybe it's not always like it. it's represented in Hollywood. Catherine, thank you so much for coming in and being a guest on The Fifth Court. OK, I'm sorry Thanks I didn't remember the uh, name of the book. <laughs> Lessons from the Bench. Lessons from the Bench, yes. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Barrister Catherine McGillicuddy, for coming in to us today and talking about all things criminal. Really, really fascinating interview. I would also like to say a huge thank you to our producer, Cunnell O'Morine. Thank you, Cunnell. And to the Dublin South Podcast Studios for recording this show and doing such a wonderful job. And Peter Rice, our sound engineer in particular. If you have any comments or any legal stories that you would like to raise with us, please contact us on our website or on, on, on LinkedIn. And Mark, as I said, we're still trying to build our audience. We Last are, week so we were telling everybody about a chart position. I think we've held it. Have we held it? I, 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 I haven't checked it, in the yeah. last five minutes. But, uh, <laughs> we anyway, need to see top if, of the pops. If, if, if anybody thinks that their friends or colleagues would be interested to please share on the appropriate social media forums. Keep, keep pressing that button or whatever it is. Okay, so that's it. From myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Until next time, goodbye. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.